0: Uh, we are continuing a series for Lent, uh, if you're less familiar with the church year, Lent is the 40-day season leading up to Easter, and it's intended in the flow of the church year to parallel the 40 days that Jesus spent being tempted in the wilderness uh, by, by the devil. So it's a time when we reflect on the ways all of us are tempted, uh, in the ways Jesus was in the desert, and intentionally turn to the Lord and turn from those things we know to be wrong. Uh, So today, we continue the series, In His Own Words. This is our Lenten series, um, and it's based on the I am statements of Jesus. And if you weren't with us last week, I, I shared a little bit about a field trip that Jesus took his disciples on to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi represented... Uh, kind of every spiritual option available to people back in that day and they could find something to worship there. There were temples to everybody and his brother so it was kind of the, the full smorgasbord. Jesus took his disciples there to ask, who do people say I am? And the disciples answered him and then you know, he turned to them and said, who do you say I am? Meaning, I think, do you think I'm just one of these many options back here, um, from which you can choose a little of this, a little of that, or do you think there's something fundamentally different going on here? That that really was the question, and th- that question is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus asked his disciples. And before we assume we know the answer, or before we accept what somebody else says about Jesus, we should look at what he said about himself. Thus, the I am statements. Jesus. Use seven of these in John's Gospel, and each of them reveals a different aspect of Jesus' identity. Uh, So today, Jesus said, I am
1: the Good Shepherd. Let's listen to that passage. Friends, listen to these words from John 10 and how Jesus describes himself I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the Shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Craig.
0: Like all the images Jesus uses in these I am statements, because he does use images, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, there's a staff over there this week, Uh, Like all of them, they would bring together a mental picture of something very familiar to the people of Jesus' day. And in, in this image, the contrast is between those who care for the sheep well and those who do not. I'll look at it again quickly. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the good shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Uh, So maybe to make it simple, we've got good shepherd, bad shepherd, right? Uh, Not long after I became a Christian in college, a good friend of mine gave me a book titled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Anybody know this book? Raise your hands, few. Um, it's, It's a great book. She inscribed it with this. John, among the many volumes of good Christian reading material, there are several must-have books for one's library. This is one of them. Read, enjoy, and reread Your Sister in Christ, Shannon. I have read it. I have reread it. I continue to enjoy it. I commend it to you. It's a really great book. The author, Philip Keller, grew up in East Africa among shepherds in that area whose customs were very similar to Middle Eastern shepherds. He also later in life worked as a shepherd himself. He was a sheep owner and a rancher for nearly a decade. So he explores this whole image, Jesus as good shepherd, from a background of shepherding. A wealth of personal experience in being a shepherd. Let me read a little from his book. He tells the story of his first sheep ranch. The tenant sheepman on the farm next to my first ranch was the most indifferent manager I had ever met. He was not concerned about the condition of his sheep. His land was neglected. He gave little or no time to his flock, letting them pretty well forage for themselves as best they could, both summer and winter. They fell prey to dogs, cougars, and rustlers. Every year, these poor creatures were forced to gnaw away at bare brown fields and impoverished pastures. Every winter, there was a shortage of nourishing hay and wholesome grain to feed the hungry ewes. Shelter to safeguard and protect the suffering sheep from storms and blizzards was scanty and inadequate. They had only polluted muddy water to drink. There had been a lack of salt and other trace minerals needed to offset their sickly pastures, In their thin, weak, and diseased condition, these poor sheep were a pathetic sight. In my mind's eye, I can still see them standing at the fence, huddled sadly in little knots, staring wistfully through the wires at the rich pastures on the other side. That's a picture, isn't it? This kind of experience would resonate with the people of Jesus' day they would have known good shepherds and they would have known bad shepherds. They would have vivid images in their mind of flocks that were, that were well cared for, well tended. And they would have had images of flocks that were kind of let go, abandoned even. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Bad shepherds let the flock go, you know, unconcerned about them, unconcerned about providing for them. If that's what bad shepherds do, what do good shepherds do? Keller continues. The good shepherd is the sheep man to whom no trouble is too great as he cares for his flock. He's the rancher who is outstanding because of his fondness for the sheep who loves them for their own sake as well as his personal pleasure in them. He will, if necessary, be on the job 24 hours a day to see that they are properly provided for in every detail. He is the owner who delights in his flock. For him, there is no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than that of seeing his sheep contented, well fed, safe, and flourishing under his care. He will go to no end of trouble and labor to supply them with the finest grazing, the richest pasturage, ample winter feed, and clean water. He will spare himself no pains to provide shelter from storms, protection from ruthless enemies, and the diseases and parasites to which sheep are so susceptible. From early dawn until late at night, this utterly selfless shepherd is alert to the welfare of his flock. For the diligent sheepman, rises early and goes out first thing every morning without fail to look over his flock. It is the initial intimate contact of the day. With a practiced, searching, sympathetic eye, he examines the sheep to see that they are fit and content and able to be on their feet. In an instant, he can tell if they have been harmed during the night, whether any are ill or if there are some which require special attention. Repeatedly throughout the day, he casts his eye over the flock to make sure that all is well. Nor even at night is he oblivious to their needs. He sleeps, as it were, with one eye and both ears open, ready at the least sign of trouble to leap up and protect his own. This is a sublime picture of the care given to those whose lives are under Christ's control. Remember part of being uh, Jesus being the gate if you remember that from last week was that the shepherd was actually the door. There wasn't actually a door. The shepherd was the door, lay- laying there, protection, protecting the sheep. Jesus said, "I am the good shepherd." In many ways, this is a one-point sermon, and that's it. Uh, but we have to ask, why is Psalm 23 so popular? I mean, how how would you answer that? I think because of our felt need to be cared for and tended and led and provided for, our deeply felt need to know that someone is actually leading and guiding and cares? I mean, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He went on to explain in verses 14 and 15 what that means. He said, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. It's a one-point sermon, but I think it it touches on what can be for us a crisis of faith. I mean, to to really digest this image that Jesus used, uh, we we have to grapple with what we're tempted to believe by living in this world. I, I really do think this image confronts a crisis of faith that has been around for a long time and is very much prevalent today. Jesus said he's the good shepherd, the one who is on point for us all the time, concerned about our whereabouts, condition, food supply, water supply, health, safety, all the stuff Keller said about the good shepherd, right? On it, on it all the time. But the problem is, life in a fallen world sometimes doesn't feel at all like that. It doesn't feel like anybody is on point for us. I mean, we all know this. This is the real thing. This gets to our felt need, and I think why Psalm 23 is so popular. I mean, we experience loss and pain. Accidents happen. Cancer's a thing. Violence shatters families, devastates societies. I and mean, suffering is real. It invades our lives and hijacks our dreams. There's no getting around it. And we all know it. It doesn't feel like there's a good shepherd on point for us all the time. I don't know about you, sometimes it feels like there's no shepherd at all. And if we're being honest, and that gets to the crisis of faith that confronts us, I think, a competition in our hearts and minds as to to what Uh, what to believe, what what to really believe now, not what we say we believe, but what we're really buying into. There are two images on the, well, more than that, but two I'm going to point to, the the shepherd's staff, of course, for the good shepherd, and a clock. Oh, this is a clock that my wife Crystal's grandfather made for her. Um, And the images represent two different things. Obviously, the Uh, The shepherd's staff represents the image that Jesus used to describe who he is and uh, what he is doing in our lives for us and for the world. Uh, The clock represents the spiritual belief of deism. And if, if deism is new to you, here's a quick definition. Deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being specifically of a creator who does not intervene in the universe, And the classic kind of academic image used to explain deism is a clock. That God took a clock, he created the clock, he wound it up, but then he set it on the mantle or on a table and has backed off and is letting it run down on its own. Now, it is quite ironic that the battery in my clock died. (laughs) It was running at eight this morning. So imagine it's a wind-up clock and it's actually running And the image would be that God created it, gave it everything it needed to run on its own and then walked away. Right? That's deism. Now the the two very different images two very different views of the world and what's actually going on in this thing we're experiencing called life. Uh, And my fear is this. Sometimes we might say in our with our mouths that we believe that thing, but in our hearts believe that this is really what's going on. So the, the Good Shepherd image is an invitation to kind of go after this part of your heart and, and to, to turn to God in that. Christians don't believe in deism for a very specific reason. We believe in the staff not the clock, not because of how life feels or how we experience it, but because of what Jesus has done and because that's historical, not just philosophical. So here's the through line. We believe in the shepherd's staff, not the clock, because we believe that the bodily resurrection of Jesus happened historically, raised from the dead in his body because we believe the resurrection really happened. We believe that the message of Jesus is from God, not like all the rest of the, on the spiritual smorgasbord, right? Unlike all the other religions and spiritual philosophies of the world, we believe the message of Jesus is unique and uniquely from God because Jesus was raised from the dead and Jesus said his message was unique. The resurrection means necessarily that the message of Jesus is unlike any other option in the world. Because we believe the message of Jesus is from God, we believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he did what he said he came to do. Who he was, God in the flesh, fully human, fully God, what he came to do to become our substitute, to become sin for us for the purpose of paying a debt that we owed that we couldn't pay, all because he loves us so much he couldn't let us go. He wants us to come back, wants wants relationship with us, unhindered, wants to be in that relationship with us. Because we believe Jesus was who he he said he was and that he did what he said he would do, we trust the things he said. Because we trust the things he said, we pay particular attention to the Bible, which is our best record of the things he said. And Jesus said, I am God the good shepherd. He didn't say, I'm the shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He didn't say, I am a good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. That image of good shepherd communicates with unequivocal clarity. That God loves you that God cares, that God is providing right now, whether it feels like that or not. That image communicates all those things. Back to Psalm 23. Why so popular? Because of how we experience life. Why did Jesus choose this as one of the images to share with us? Because of our experience of life, we need to know there's a shepherd and we need to know he's good. See, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It, it says that we are the object of God's concern and diligent care. All the time, no matter our current experience in life. And, and that gets to something that is very important. It it talks about what faith in Jesus looks like. I'm I'm intentionally trying to avoid adverbs, even though I said you know toward a prevailing faith as the thing. A good friend of mine pointed out one time that in the Bible, there are no modifiers on faith, no no adverbs, no adjectives. You don't have to have authentic faith, real faith, deep faith. You just need trust in Jesus. And it can be as small as a mustard seed, just super teeny. You just just need to trust Jesus. You don't have to like modify it in any super special way. But that mustard seed trust in Jesus brings with it a, a prevailing faith that overcomes anything life can throw your way. Doesn't do away with suffering, doesn't make it easy. Maybe Jesus gave us such a vivid image of who he is, the good shepherd, for the very reason that life in a fallen world makes it difficult to believe that he's both good and caring. He knows it's hard, right? I've got to believe that. Why else do we have Psalm 23 and Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd? And then God is saying, hang in there. I get it. It's broken. But look, literally look at the image of a good shepherd, This is who I am. The Lord is saying, hang on to that. Hang on to me. Don't forget it. This is the truth about me. And of course, as followers of Jesus, we know that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. God is a good shepherd. And when we soak in this truth that that the Lord is a good shepherd, nurture it, discuss it with others. Um, let others believe it for us for a little while when it's difficult for us to believe it for ourselves. When we pray through it regularly, this this prevailing faith begins to emerge in our hearts. It's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote this. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. There it is. The secret of being content no matter what's happening in life. See, Trust in Jesus prevails by superseding our circumstances. It's bigger than that. Of anything life can throw our way. It's what the psalmist meant by this. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. That's incredibly random until you do the geography background. The valley of Baca was a barren wasteland. There was nothing to drink in like forever. What this means is that there's a kind of faith that has the power to turn the barren wastelands of our lives into a place of springs. Meaning, I think, an oasis, right? A welcome reprieve from the desert. I remember when I was um, new in the faith, I came across Psalm 63. Do you know this psalm? One of my faves. Uh, You, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Well, that pretty much sums up how I experience life. (laughs) A dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. That, that complete satisfaction in a dry and weary land where there's no water, right? It's this like, huh? Like, I don't get it. Kind of thing. Uh, but but it is real. And it's, it's a Psalm 46 kind of thing. Even though the mountains fall into the seas. Right? I'm good. Doesn't mean I like it, but I'm good. Really. Sorry, my sermon got all messed up here. There we go. I, I think that that idea of an oasis in the desert, right? When they journey through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Right in the middle of the searing desert is reprieve with plenty of water, plenty of food. You, know, like the, like the, you can just think oasis. And, and the thing about it is that when the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, I think a piece of that means that we're, it's more than that, that we've just received what Jesus has done for us and kind of conquered or, or gained some kind of victory over what's happening in life and in the world, even in, over our own uh, uh, Tendencies are kind of shadow side and all of that. Uh, To be be more than conquerors, I think one aspect is that we've received a promised land in which to live. You know, a place of springs right in the middle of the searing desert. And that, that that space is ours to occupy in Christ if we would like. Though sometimes I kind of wonder, if like the Israelites, we can choose the desert for 40 years because we're believing some kind of lie about something. But it, it's like a space, a space for us to occupy, that kind of prevailing faith. So when you're tempted to believe the lie of the clock, oh, it is running. It's just not doing the little thingy. Um, when you're tempted, <laughs> look, a bird. I, when you're tempted to believe the lie of the clock <laughs> that God wound it up, set it, meaning you, those you love, family, the whole, the whole shebang on the mantle to unwind on its own. Don't believe that. Right? It's, the, it's that. It's that. The shepherd's staff. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I wonder if we could close today by reciting together the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters, He refreshes my soul. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us grow in our trust of you that we might live in that place where we believe with every fiber of our being that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in your house now and forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.